The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. All are welcome. We're glad you found us. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Get healthy and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. You know how there are some things that you really want to see in your lifetime, but you don't really think you're going to live that long? Well, what happened this past week in California was one of those things. They passed legislation that it is going to be illegal in the great state of California to sell any cosmetics that were tested on animals. Oh my gosh, this takes me back to the days when we used to try to make our own makeup out of food coloring and Crisco. (laughs) It wasn't exactly elegant. We could also import beauty without cruelty products from the UK. But that was difficult at the time as well. And the idea that California is doing what it's doing means that the world, America certainly, and all those big companies are going to have to take notice. We are doing this one victory at a time. And thanks to all of you for being part of this upward progression of the universe. I'm Victoria Moran, your host for this program, and we have two wonderful guests today. I know that a lot of you were expecting Keith Tucker from Hip Hop is Green. He unexpectedly had to fly today, so we did some juggling, and he'll be on later, and some people scheduled for later are coming on sooner. So it all works. Divine Order, as they say in Unity, Unity being the organization that hosts this radio program live every Wednesday afternoon and then coming to you as a podcast from all the places you get podcasts. So if you don't know about my work, um, go to MainStreetVegan.net. We do all sorts of remarkable things there, like run an academy that trains vegans to be vegan lifestyle coaches and educators. Want to be one of those? Pretty cool. Anyway, after our break, we will be speaking with Jack Norris, registered dietitian and co-founder of Vegan Outreach. And right now, it is my distinct pleasure to be introducing someone I have admired for a good long time, and she is Amy Hamlin. Amy pretty much single-handedly 
has brought an astonishingly strong health message and plant-based health message into schools in New York State. She heads up the Coalition for Healthy School Food, a nonprofit organization that gets plant-powered entrees onto school menus and educates the whole school community, students, parents, teachers, food service personnel, and other staff about the benefits of plant-based eating. And every year for 14 years now, they celebrate with a vegan food tasting gala in New York City, and that's coming right up. And today we're going to learn more about what they do and their big celebration. Welcome, Amy Hamlin. Thank you, Victoria. Well, it's always a pleasure because I remember when you had this idea, when you were talking about it, and I remember thinking, oh my gosh, public schools. I mean, that talk about organizations that are entrenched in how we've always done it. And yet you said you'd do it. And you did. So (laughs) why is healthy food in schools such an important issue? Well, schools are the place where kids go to learn. And part of what they learn about is healthy eating, even if what they're taught about healthy eating isn't quite right because of food industry influence. But in general, they learn about healthy eating, and therefore schools should set a good example and practice what they teach. And um, I think this is important because when parents send their kids to school, they expect them to be safe and for schools to make good decisions for their kids while they're there. And that's not always what happens in relation to food. So it's important for the kids that are coming from food insecure homes to not only get food, but to get healthy food because it might be their only opportunity for healthy food. And For the kids whose parents do feed them healthfully, um, schools should not be undermining that. So what is the problem, the the impact of of poor diet on kids? You know, I think we've always thought, oh, you can get by with anything when you're young, when you turn 40, start eating healthy. Right. Well, a lot of um, those problems that adults get when they're 40 or after actually do have their roots in childhood, not only because of taste preferences, but because of actual changes in the body. So uh, we know that over 50% of kids already have early stage heart disease. And I'm talking kids between the ages of 2 and 15 years old. They have fatty streaks in their arteries, and this is literally early stage heart disease. So as a result now, children as young as eight years old are already being prescribed cholesterol and blood pressure-lowering medications. That's horrifying. um, Just pause pause to be horrified. It it truly is. And, you know, these medications, they have serious side effects, and yet with a change in diet, they would be completely unnecessary. There is no excuse for any child. And I don't usually make such... such, statements that are so absolute, but in this case, it really is true that uh, with a change in diet, these medications would be completely unnecessary. And so that's that's cardiovascular disease, but diabetes is also a major problem. Everybody knows it. Everybody hears about diabetes all the time. But now what's happening is there's an epidemic of kids getting type 2 diabetes 
at a younger and younger age. And this used to be called adult onset diabetes, not to be confused with type 1 diabetes, which is an autoimmune disorder. But type 2 is a lifestyle disease. It can be caused from being overweight, but sometimes a person doesn't even have to be overweight to get it. But in general, um, kids are getting it even as early as elementary school now. So what, what was adult onset is now happening in kids. And what is happening is one-third of all kids right now will end up getting type 2 diabetes at some point in their lives, and maybe even while they're still in school. But if you look at African-American and Latino kids, those numbers go up to 40 to 53% that will get type diabetes. So some groups, over half of the people in those groups will have type 2. And that is also completely horrifying when you think about what happens to people with diabetes that isn't well controlled. And the fact is that type 2 diabetes is reversible with a low-fat, plant-based, unprocessed diet. It's reversible. You can get rid of type 2 diabetes in about three months wow. so that your doctor so could look at you. and that that we yes. accept right. this as, yeah, well, that's the way it is. I don't think this network still exists, but I remember when we had some kind of cable company, so maybe it still exists on that cable company, there was an actual cable network called D-Life, Diabetes Life Network. So 24 hours a day, you could watch programming geared to people with diabetes. Now, certainly it's important that people with diabetes get information, but the information they're not getting is what you just said, that it can be reversed. Ah. Yes, it's, it's, reverse. it's actually reversible so that your doctor, or, or if you went to a new doctor and they did the tests on you, they would never know you had it. So it's reversible. So, And then, you know, there's also cancer, of course. And we, we don't know that cancer is reversible, but we do know that it's many, in many cases, it's preventable, at least certain types of cancer, the ones that are related to diet. And we also know that a healthy plant-based diet extends cancer survival time. And about 30 to 50% of all cancers are caused by diet. The other, another 33% are caused by tobacco. So we actually know how to prevent the majority of cancers. But, um, you know, so the impact of a poor diet on kids is tremendous. And the thing is that in school, it impacts them not just because they might be overweight, not just because they might be unhealthy, but, but how it impacts their performance in school, their ability to learn, their, their psychological state. You know, if they're overweight, they might be bullied, which is wrong, but it happens. And if, um, and if, they're not getting the nutrients that feed their, their bodies and their brain, then they're not able to focus and concentrate as well, and their immune system isn't as healthy, so they're not in school as often because they're out sick. And so for all these reasons, eating a healthy plant-based diet is very important for kids. And I think the one other thing I want to add that, that some kids, they laugh when I talk about it, but is that a lot of kids are constipated most of the time. When I when I ask young kids in school, we first we ask if they know what that word means and then I ask how many of them it happens to and all the hands go up. 
And then I say, okay, put your hands down now. Raise your hand if it happens to you a lot. And all the hands go back up. So I think that most people know how that feels, that it's uncomfortable, that you can't really focus and concentrate and play and have a great time when you're not feeling well because of that. So obviously a plant-based diet is full of fiber and constipation is not something, it's not a problem that most people eating a a healthy plant-based diet has. So that's, that's also very important. Wow. So Amy, when I was a kid, food was bad. I was probably the first generation of the Twinkies and, and the, Oreos, which weren't even vegan back then, and all the little uh, individual snack packages of potato chips and things like that. But we still had other food, too. And I happened to be an obese child, but I was usually the only one or only one of two in the whole school. And now that's all reversed. So what are kids eating now that has made all of these problems so prevalent? Well, I think a lot of schools' lunches mimic fast food. Now, granted, because of the USDA requirements, they're going to be lower fat, lower sodium, lower calorie than your typical fast food, but they mimic fast food. They're very processed. And, you know, when I go to the School Nutrition Association conferences and you walk around at the expo and see all the companies, just everything, almost everything is very, very processed. And I don't think we can blame the schools for this because I think the schools are actually just reflecting what's out there in society. And and yes, their food should be healthy, but I think there's this challenge that the kids won't eat the food and they're not used to home-cooked or scratch-made foods. They're not used to more high-fiber food or more fruits and vegetables, whole grains and beans. And so... It's the school's kind of in a difficult situation, and so what they're doing is just what everybody else is doing, except that their processed, you know, meat-based menus are a little bit lower fat and lower sodium, basically. I see. So when you talk about healthy food in schools, I don't think there's a parent or or a teacher anywhere who would say, oh, I, I disapprove of that. And yet what you have done and what the Coalition for Healthy School Food is doing is talking about not just what most people would think of as healthy food, you're talking about healthy plant-based foods. And I have known you long enough to know that you identify as a vegan and you accept all the reasons for being vegan. So have you run into problems with schools when you get to the Let's do this without animal foods part. I think that, yes, some schools are very resistant, but some schools are very accepting. And um, I I do want to add one other thing before I finish answering that is a lot of people think when you talk about healthy food, they say, well, we have fruits and vegetables and we have whole grains, but it's the entree that's always left out of the conversation. And the entree is always based on meat or cheese. And so our goal is to get legume or tofu-based, you know, beans, lentils, tofu-based entrees on those menus. That's what we're really changing because schools do already require fruits and vegetables and whole grains. So, um, yeah, some schools are resistant, but some schools really want it. 
and sometimes it's driven by parents, sometimes teachers, sometimes board members, all different members of the school community might reach out to us about this. Wow. And um, So I know that there's more than one school in New York City, at least, that is, I don't know if it's vegetarian or 100% um, plant-based foods. How did that come about, and how could somebody do that in their own school if they wanted to try? <laughs> well, first of all, they can ask us how we did it, but just in, in brief, we worked with the New York City Office of School Food, and we are a formal partner with them, and we worked with them, and we asked them, could there be a vegetarian menu? Because we had a school, and we talked to that school. We said if we, we were up to three days a week with plant-based vegan food on the menu, we were ready to go to the fourth day a week, and the school told us not to mess with Pizza Friday. So we're like, okay, let's get vegan food on as an entree four days a week. And just then, that was 2012, when the school nutrition standards changed. New regulations came into being. And so they had to have standardized menus, and they couldn't just be doing something different in this one school. So basically, I said, well, would you be willing to do a vegetarian menu? And I said vegetarian because they have to offer milk. So um, so the school agreed they wanted it. The Office of School Food said, if they want it, we will accommodate it. And they did. And now we have four vegetarian schools in New York City. And if any other schools want the vegetarian menu, they can have it, basically. Um, there's, there's maybe a few situations where they can't, like a school that is in a building with other schools. So there are some schools in the city where several building, schools are in one building. In that case, all principals would have to agree to the menu change because it's wow. one cafeteria. But other than that, if a school wants it, they can have it. And we work with them to help make that transition. And we um, help you know, provide the support, teacher professional development, curriculum for the students, family dinner nights so the parents can come in and have a plant-based meal made by the Office of School Food. And, um, you know, our goal is to get more plant-based entrees on all of the menus because four schools is not a lot of schools out of 1,800 schools in New York City. But we, so we want to get more schools to adopt the vegetarian menu, but we also want to get more plant-based vegan entrees on all menus across the city. Mm. Wow. So in addition to health, you, you believe that food and kids have another connection, that there are additional impacts. What are those? Yes. Well, because food doesn't just impact our health. It has other impacts in the world, one of which is that um, it's connected to um, it's con connected to the environment. It's one of the raising animals for food is one of the biggest causes of greenhouse gas production. And so, and we know from research that eliminating animal products from the diet is the biggest thing any individual can do to help the environment. And so, all those other things they do, recycling, turning off the lights, and all those other things, those are great. But by re by eliminating animal products from the diet or at the very least reducing, that's more than more impact than all of those other things combined. 
So it's huge. It's really huge in relation to the environment. Uh, so I think, you know, we're talking about the environment a lot. We're talking about sustainability a lot. We're seeing the impacts of climate change and we need to take action. And sometimes some of those actions aren't easy for individuals to take. But this one, what you eat, every time you eat every day, you can make a choice to help the environment by eating plant-based instead of animal foods. Well, Amy Hamlin, you are a superhero. And I know you have lots and lots more work to do, but you're going to take a day off uh, later in October <laughs> to just celebrate and kind of bask in the glory of what the Coalition for Healthy School has already done. So tell us all about the gala. Okay. Well, this is held at the New York Academy of Medicine, and we celebrate our work with a vegan food tasting gala. So we have about 20 food vendors there. And people go from table to table and get to eat food on a school lunch tray. <laughs> and um, we have been told it's the best vegan party in New York City. Many people have told us that. So we have lots of people who come who care about the issue of food in schools. And we also have lots of vegans who come just because the food is great. Um, and um, we are going to have a separate room just with vegan cheese and wine. And uh, we have a silent auction, a raffle, an open bar, and then you get to go home with a gift bag. And um, this year we have, for the higher level donors, a VIP reception that starts before the rest of the event. So um, if people want information, they can go to our website, healthyschoolfood.org. And when you see the homepage there, you can click on the event to get more information. Wow. And I happen to know a couple who are going to be spending their anniversary there. Uh, I know them too. <laughs> that would be my yeah. husband and myself. It's October 18th. So um, if you're in New York, if you live here, if you plan to be here, get yourself a ticket and come and celebrate. The venue itself is, is really worth the trip. That Academy of Medicine is the most beautiful piece of architecture, the most beautiful place to hold a gala. It, it's just, it's really fun. I agree with all those people who say it's the best party because, you know, you couldn't get me away from my anniversary if it weren't. Thank <laughs> so, you. And it's a great way to celebrate your anniversary. It is. It is. That, that the world is changing and in some ways for the very much better. And, and this is one of those. So, you're not like a voice in the wilderness all alone, just be in your own self. You are partnered with lots of other groups and organizations. How does that work? Well, we um, are in a formal partnership with New York City Office of School Food. We're also in a formal partnership with the Ithaca City School District in upstate New York. We're currently helping two schools in Florida adopt vegan menus. And um, even though they'll, but one of them at least is participating in the USDA school meal program, which requires milk to be offered, but the food will be all vegan. And so we help schools anywhere in the country. We are happy to help. If you want to get changes in your school, we would love for you to contact us and, um, and we'll help. Oh, that's fabulous. So everybody, she means it. So uh, be in touch with Amy Hamlin, healthyschoolfood.org. Now, Amy, 
you have done these galas for several years. You're very, very good at it. So for people out there who are part of organizations or who want to do something to further this cause wherever they are in the world, do you have some tips for putting on a successful event? (laughs) Make sure the food is good, I think. And um, hire an event planner if possible um, because event planners make planning a gala a whole lot easier. And um, we just, we have an amazing event. I mean, all the food is donated. We have all these items donated for the silent auction, the raffle, the open, you know, the bar. Everything is donated. And so it really helps us put on a great event and um, virtually all of the money that we take in goes into our program, which is really important. That's the whole point. But I would say that if if you want to put on an event like this, making friends with a lot of people who can help you, the restaurants, um, people who have products that you would like in your gift bags or your silent auction or your raffle, you know, get to know these people, develop relationships. We go back to them year after year, and they're really wonderful. And I do want to add, I just realized that I I forgot to mention that part of the – Gala is a silent auction, which is actually online right now. Um, And you can see, so even if you can't attend our gala, you can support our work by going to our online auction, which is at 32, it's the number 32, 32auctions.com slash 2018gala. Again, that's 32auctions.com slash 2018gala. And as an example of what you could buy on that is dinner with Victoria Moran at Yay. the Botanique. I'll be there. The <laughs> so, Amy, <laughs> you've raised a child in this wonderful lifestyle. How old is your daughter now? And my daughter is now 16. Oh, my goodness. Yes. That's an exciting age. So um, a tip or two for parents. How, how do, uh, what's the secret of raising a happy, healthy, well-adjusted young vegan? Well, I think the first thing to do, and I think this is true for any parent, is keep kids away from sugar and junk food in for as long as possible because there's no reason to be giving one and two and three-year-olds sugar at all or other junk food. And then you feed them healthy food. They'll develop a taste for healthy food. But at a certain point, I also do believe that you've got to let your kid have some of the vegan junk food because they're already different and you don't want them to feel so different that they don't want to stay vegan. And so there's vegan ice cream, there's vegan cookies, there's all these things, and they're really delicious. Um, and I, I don't think there's any reason to give them to kids at a young age. But at a certain age in elementary school, um, when your kid is noticing what everybody else is eating, giving them versions that are vegan will make the kid feel excited about the food and not so different. You're, you are so friends. wise. Thanks, Amy Hamlin. Everybody <laughs> else, stay with us for Jack Norris, R.D. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
Unity Online Radio is bringing the message of unity to thousands of spiritual seekers around the world. If you enjoy our programming, we invite you to support it by visiting unityonlineradio.org and clicking on Donate Now. Help us continue to provide inspiring content to everyone. Thank you for your support. Here's a Unity Meditation Minute with Paulette Pipe. So as always, we begin our time of meditation by first taking account of what we're feeling, those sights that we're seeing, those sensations that we're experiencing, and each breath that we breathe. Notice where in your body you're experiencing those sensations. Let your breathing find its own rhythm. As we begin the process of letting go, the process of relaxation. Remember why we're here. To hear more from Paulette Pipe and Touching the Stillness, visit the archives section at unityonlineradio.org. Grief can bring you down, but it doesn't have to take over your life. From Grieving to Believing is a transformational weekend taking place November 16th to the 18th at Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health. Join grief expert David Kessler, spiritual medium Maureen Hancock, and Paul Denniston, the creator of Grief Yoga, in the beautiful Berkshires of Western Massachusetts. This unique event will take you into deep soul healing, addressing body, mind, and spirit. Reserve your space today at kripalu.org. Search Grieving to Believing. If you've been on a spiritual path for a long time, what can you read that's new and exciting? Try Unity Magazine. It's designed for the seasoned spiritual student with in-depth articles and interviews about spiritual practices and philosophies. Our columnists share their own faith journeys and cover healing, science, and psychology with even a little scripture thrown in. You'll read some classic authors and some new ones. Get a free trial issue at unitymagazine.org. Discover what your dreams are trying to tell you. Join dream expert, best-selling author, and hypnotherapist Kelly Sullivan Walden for Ask Dr. Dream every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Central. Kelly will awaken you to the wisdom of your dreaming mind with expert interpretation as well as introduce you to fascinating guests. Each week, you'll get information you can use to help make decisions and gain greater self-awareness. Join the show live or listen later on demand here on unityonlineradio.org. Call now with your question or comment. 816-251-3555. That's 816-251-3555. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Welcome back. I want to let you know that our blog this week at MainStreetVegan.net is the first of a two-part series by Holly Scotus of Yoga is Vegan, and she has interviewed Sharon Gannon, the co-founder of Jiva Mukti Yoga. So if you're into yoga, you're really going to want to read that. It's quite insightful 
And I also want to let you know that I have some news on the book front. It's not a new book exactly, but it's a book that is 20 some years old. Oh my gosh, 24 years old. It's called The Love Power Diet, Eating for Freedom, Health and Joy. And it's the story of how I overcame a real serious problem with binge eating and uh, became vegan. And uh, it's inspiring and has had several lifetimes in print, and it is now on Audible. It's my very first Audible book, and I'm so excited. And if you're not used to Audible and, and getting books there that you can listen to, your first one is actually free. So maybe you'll want to make that the love-powered diet. So thanks very much, and thanks very much to our next guest, who is coming to us from sunny Southern California. And he is Jack Norris. And oh my gosh, you've got to look up on the archives his first visit to our program, which was a long time ago, 2012 or 2013. And he had so much fabulous, practical information that helped people. I have had so many wonderful emails from people saying, Jack Norris rocks, bring him back. So took a while, but brought him back. Jack is a registered dietitian, and he is also the executive director and one of the founders of Vegan Outreach. In 2005, Jack was elected to the Animal Rights Hall of Fame, and he is the co-author with Ginny Messina, MPHRD, of Vegan for Life, which I don't know if you know this, Jack, but I require people who come to Main Street Vegan Academy to read seven books on a whole variety of things of interest to vegans and that I think people who are going out as vegan coaches should know. And the one about nutrition is your book, Vegan for Life. Terrific book. Wow. Nothing that I have seen since 2012 can can match it. So kudos on that well, and welcome so to the program. Thank you, Victoria. And I run into people who've gone through the Main Street Vegan Academy, and um, I'm surprised at how many people I run into that have done it. So thank you for all you're doing. Oh, thank you. Yeah, we have, I think with our latest class, we're up to like 340 or 360. I know it's 25 countries. Wow. It's easier to count the countries than uh, to count the individuals. So Thanks. let's start out. I know everybody wants to hear all about nutrition and if there's anything revolutionary that's happened <laughs> since you were here before. But I want to hear about Vegan Outreach. This is a fascinating organization and it fills a niche that's a little bit different than what some of the other groups are doing. So tell us about what you do there. Okay, great. Um, so our main focus has been outreach to college students over the last, we really ramped it up in the mid-aughts around 2006 is when we started reaching hundreds of thousands every semester. And on average, we reach about 1 million college students at 1,000 schools every semester nowadays with our booklets. So what we do is uh, we have outreach coordinators throughout the world who go to different colleges and just hand out our booklets to students. <clears throat> but lately, uh, one thing that we're really focused on is getting people to sign up for our 10 Weeks to Vegan email series where you get an email once a week for 10 weeks and it shows you how to replace each type of animal product <clears throat> with a vegan food. 
And um, we, we recently revamped that series, and I think it's really great now and very helpful to people who are interested in going vegan or who are new to it. And so what our leafleters are doing is they're now – they carry a sign-up sheet with them, and they work at getting people to sign up for the 10-week series as they're leafleting, which is juggling a lot of things. But um, our, our goal for the next year is to get 50,000 signups to 10 Weeks to Vegan – and we're doing pretty well so far. We're up to 6,000 after just a couple months. And it should increase uh, steadily as the year goes on because we're, we're implementing new ways of getting people to sign up as well as, you know, we only get a limited amount on the college campuses, but we're doing all sorts of other things to get people to sign up as well. Um, and we just uh, two weeks ago launched our India 10 Weeks to Vegan series. So we're excited about that, and we're uh, soon going to be launching our Australia and a Mexico version in Spanish as well. And then we'll keep working on different areas to create as many 10 Weeks to Vegan series as we can so that it'll be tailored to people all over the world. Excuse me. So will you be targeting a college demographic in the other countries as well? Yeah, right now we're on the ground in India. In fact, one of our biggest things this year uh, in 2018 has been that we've expanded our India program significantly. We now have, I think, seven employees in India, and they're doing college outreach there, as well as many other things. They do a lot of humane education. They give presentations, um, and they've been well, greatly well-received. I mean, it's, it's really impressive how many people will come out to hear someone talk about veganism. They'll get sometimes 1,000 people to their talks. Uh, which is incredible. I mean, in the United States, uh, a great showing is 100 people. So <clears throat> so we've been doing that in India, and the 10 Weeks to Vegan goes along with that program. We also have an outreach coordinator in Australia who, who leaflets all the schools there, and we have a Mexico program where we have uh, we have three paid staff and a few, uh, quite a few volunteers that do outreach throughout Mexico as well. That is and so exciting. The, yeah, one of our our big uh, one, our second primary goal is well, if you can add two primary goals, is to fam- familiarize a generation of college students with the concept of speciesism. Uh, I think we did a lot in the aughts to familiarize college students with the term vegan, and now it's basically a household term. And our next step is to get people talking about speciesism. And so, if we can make all college students aware of the concept and that it's an important thing to think about. Hopefully that will pay a lot of dividends in the years to come as they get out of school and get into the uh, working world and public policy and that sort of thing. And with speciesism on their radar, something that hasn't been talked about in previous uh, generations, but we're trying to change that. So Jack, for people who may be new and not familiar, can you explain speciesism? Yes. Uh, speciesism is basically the concept that it's you, you shouldn't mistreat an individual just because they're a member of a different species. What should matter is their awareness, their capacity to suffer, and not whether they are a dog, cat, or human. Of course, different species have different qualities that makes treating them that, that are valid reasons to treat them different. For example, we're not going to give, just for a silly example, a dog a driver's license. They can't drive a car. But when it comes to wanting to live and not wanting to be tortured, dogs are similar to humans in that respect. And we, and especially farmed animals are no different than cats and dogs. And yet we treat them greatly, you know, completely differently in our society. Um, 
So we're trying to get that concept out that you just like you shouldn't treat humans differently based on gender or race, you shouldn't be treating animals differently just because of their species, but rather uh, look at the their you know their characteristics. This is such a perfect time to be taking this to that mm. demographic. It's so exciting. And I feel that I've just had the most amazing in-person lesson on this in that for the past several months, I have been living with a pigeon named Thunder. Now, Thunder yeah. cannot go outside and be like a regular New York City pigeon because he's blind in one eye and can't fly. And so my daughter... Uh, is a wildlife rehabber and, and Thunder was living with her, but she had the opportunity to get a 10 month contract to travel as a performer. I'm very proud. My lifelong vegan daughter is an aerialist and acrobat oh. and all these amazing oh. things. So, so Thunder has been living with us and his intricate thought processes, his communication skills, his ways to express what he wants. I mean, when he figured yeah. out that in his birdie basketball game, it's fun to make a basket, but then you have to wait around for a human to take the ball out of the basket so you can play again. And he thought, well, wait a minute. If I can get the ball out of the basket, I don't have to wait for them. And he will now play basketball and then take the ball out of the basket and play again. And you know, for years I've always said, yes, all all beings are individuals with their own interests, but really being close to somebody who's so different from me. I mean, birds are yeah. pretty different from mammals, and yet in some ways not different at all. Right. Yeah, I we have a rescued turtle and it is amazing how aware the turtle is of uh, her surroundings and she calls to us when she's hungry, she slaps the water to let us know she's ready to eat. And, um, just, uh, and it's shocks me to sometimes hear people talk about animals. Uh, I, I mean, uh, vertebrate animals, especially as though, uh, they're not conscious, not aware of things. They, they don't have any self-awareness. Um, because the experiences with them, I mean, it's not just anthropomorphizing. It's profound that all that they know that's going on and trying to connect with you even. So, yeah, you may, you bring up a good point. And the way that we're educating college students on speciesism is uh, we have a booklet called What is Speciesism? And it just it focuses completely on that subject. And interestingly, we've tested our different messages uh, in both online and through leafleting, and we found that our speciesism booklet actually has the biggest impact on short-term diet change than uh, our other booklets that talk about factory farming and slaughterhouses but don't frame it in terms of speciesism. So I'm heartened by the fact that speciesism seems to resonate uh, with the students these days. Oh, that's wonderful. Wonderful. So let us move now into some nutrition talk. Or people will write to me and say, I wanted to hear more from Jack Norris about nutrition. So what about this sugar thing? I know it's not good, but there are people out there who seem to say that if you don't eat sugar, you can eat everything else on earth and you'll be fine. Oh, well, of course that's not true. 
it all really has to do with how many calories you eat. And eating a lot of sugar is an easy way to eat too many calories and eating a lot of fat is an easy way to eat too many calories. So, um, and it's true of protein as well, though fat and sugar seem to be uh, fat because it's such concentrate, such a concentrated amount of calories and sugar because you um, just, I don't know, I guess it spurs people on to eat more, it seems. Um, so the, like you said, sugar's not good, and the less sugar you eat, the better, most likely. But eating a little bit of sugar is fine if you um, are not eating more than your daily intake of your, your daily recommended amount of calories. Uh, so really, some people there there are differences among people, and some people metabolize sugar very poorly, and those people need to cut way back on sugar. And there's no there's no question that there are people like that with prediabetes or diabetes. So that's something that they have to be aware of. But eating large amounts of fat is generally not great for people with uh, prediabetes either. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a balance. And there is, I think, good research showing that vegan, whole foods, vegan diets are a good way to treat diabetes. Um, and I mean, I know that you're aware of the, the research that PCRM has done that has been published in the scientific literature and seems like very valid research that they've had quite significant improvements in people who go on whole foods, vegan diets. Now, I don't necessarily think a whole foods, vegan diet is certainly not necessary for everyone and not necessarily even ideal for everyone. If you're someone who's extremely active and you need large amounts of calories, large amounts of protein, say you're a bodybuilder, then eating more processed foods, especially some of the vegan meats that are very high in protein is I think a good thing to do, but you do have to balance it out obviously with plenty of fruits and vegetables and nuts and beans so that you're getting all the nutrition you need in addition to just the uh, macronutrients like fat and carbohydrates and um, protein. So does that, um, I think that's about, I could talk about it for a long time, but I think I could, <laughs> um, depending on what more you'd be interested in. No, that that's good. I, I think so often people ask these argumentative questions and they don't really want a huge amount of information. They just want to be satisfied with mm -hmm. the fact that there is uh, perhaps uh, another way to look at things. But I have to say, Jack, now maybe you get a pass on this because you're a dietitian, but you use the word calories. I'm afraid to use a word like that because people will tell me that I am body shaming and health shaming. Mm -hmm. There are words right. I won't touch, and that's one of them. What's all that about? Help me out. Well, I think those are valid points. I do think that there is a lot of um, body shaming, obviously, in our society and even in our movement uh, where we look down upon people who are heavier. And um, I don't know... You know, I don't think there's anything wrong with, with uh, trying to lose weight, and the research certainly seems to associate certain diseases with a higher body mass. Uh, I know that there are, there are many uh, nutritionists who argue that it isn't the body mass that's causing the problem and that we shouldn't be focused on that, and I think that there are many good points to that, that you should be focused on being fit and eating uh, healthy foods, but not so much on calories, but when it comes to whether you're going to lose weight or gain weight or stay the same, 
there doesn't seem to be anything that matters more than just how many calories you consume on a regular basis over time. And that's just the fact of the matter. And it, it's not about shaming anyone or not. Um, and th there are different strategies that can possibly change that for you, depending on, on you, on various things about you, but increasing your fiber, lowering the amount of oil you eat, not that all oil is bad, but not eating a large amount of oil and cutting back on sugar. I mean, those are three main ways to, to do it. Um, over time that can make a difference. So, um, but I, I agree with you that uh, we should not be body shaming and we should not be uh, making people feel bad who are vegan and might be heavier than, than average. I think that's extremely important, both because I spent almost half my life overweight or obese, and now I've been more than half my life vegan and no longer, in my case, binge eating, which was the reason that I was overweight and obese. I know that's not mm -hmm. everybody's reason. And so, oh, I mean, talk about body shaming back in the day when almost nobody was overweight. <laughs> it was really, right. really bad. Now there's another term that has come into the lexicon of late and that is health shaming. And mm -hmm. I don't really understand that one. I do know that vegans will get sick. Everybody gets sick. Everybody's going to die. Yeah. And, and I think it's terrible when a vegan is ill and feels that he or she can't reach out to fellow vegans for comfort, solace, help, support, because they feel like they've somehow let down the cause. And yet, I don't feel that just because there are a whole lot of people, one statistic I saw was 51% of the people in the U.S. who aren't eating animals are doing that motivated by personal health considerations. How do we bring all this together and accept everybody and make it good? Yeah, I think we just have to keep working at it uh, slowly but surely. And, and it's good that people are, have been speaking out lately about health shaming. I know that when a good friend of mine passed away, an animal activist in 2015, she was very distraught because she, she had cancer and she had spent much of her adult life trying to convince her meat eating friends and colleagues to stop eating, uh, to go vegan, to prevent diseases like cancer. Um, and while vegans, research shows that vegans do have a 15 to 20% lower risk of, of getting cancer, it doesn't mean that we have no risk of getting it. And of course, there's a lot of factors that other than diet that can affect whether you get cancer or not. And so no one should look at the, their, any disease they get as their fault all you can do is try to, you know, do what you can to minimize the probabilities. But in the end, it's, you know, it's just probabilities. So, um, and as a community, we, I definitely shouldn't shame people who get sick. Um, I mean, part of it comes from promoting veganism as a cure-all for disease. And I don't know that that's done quite as much nowadays as it used to be. I mean, there, there still is some of it. But I feel like when I got involved um, in the late 80s and early 90s, we really had the idea that that a vegan diet prevented you from getting sick and getting, any, you know, e either short term, such as colds or any sort of long term chronic illness. And that was just unrealistic. And now we know a lot more um, and we are more realistic, I think. But um, 
yeah, I, it, it it is still out there, and it's something that I certainly would uh, work, that I personally work against in my nutrition work, and do not encourage people to shame others or even or themselves if they get ill. Oh, I think it's much more oneself. I mean, truly, every time I do this show with a scratchy throat, (laughs) I think, oh, I hope there aren't any new people listening. It's like, well, what a terrible thought. Of course, there ought to be new people listening. And some of them probably Uh have scratchy throats, too. And we can all save animals and probably get quite a bit healthier all along the way and and just be okay being human. So when you were on back in 2012 or 13, we talked some about um, omega-3 fatty acids, flaxseed, mm-hmm. walnuts, and the fully formed algae-based uh, omega-3s. And at that time, you said this is all very new, and we're not really sure what we're supposed to do about those. Are we any closer to yeah. sure? Uh, I am afraid we're not. Uh, in fact, Jen, Jenny uh, Messina and Reed Mangles, who is a very well-respected dietitian in vegan circles and has written many books, they both helped me uh, run veganhealth.org now. And we've just in the re- last few weeks have been reassessing our omega-3 recommendations. And so we've been reviewing the literature. And uh, while it's true that fish oil uh, and other, presumably other omega-3 supplements are not a way to prevent heart disease, uh, that's not why we encourage people to get omega-3s. We encourage it more because of the the fact that DHA is an important fatty acid in in nerve tissue and in the brain. And so we want to make sure because vegans, uh, vegans who aren't supplementing have lower blood levels of DHA, we're just, we just want to make sure that vegans are getting enough DHA for, to prevent uh, cognitive difficulties, especially long-term. And there isn't, really research to suggest that, that there is a problem, but it's we just want to be real safe about it, real prudent, so that no one is um, setting themselves up for any sort of problems down the road. Um, so we still recommend, I, I now, um, I haven't, we haven't put these recommendations on the site yet. I'm still in the process of writing them all up and getting all the, the information together, but we are going to suggest that if you get three grams of the alpha linolenic acid, the short chain omega-3, you probably do not need to supplement with DHA. But if you are concerned about it, supplementing with DHA is the easiest way to go because then you know you've got the DHA. Um, That was a real crash. I mean, I didn't really even explain it, but I can more if you want how ALA, the short chain, gets converted into the long chain DHA. did that make sense? Yeah, it, it did. And I think a lot of people okay. do understand that, that, that we can okay. eat the flax and the walnuts and right. trust that a reasonable amount of that is going to be translated into what we can use. But right. if you're concerned, there's the algae-based um, supplements. Did I say that right? Yes, Mr. you did. You said it much okay. better than I did. You said it much better. And, and it is a tough situation because I really there isn't evidence that vegans need it. But yet we want to be safe. Yeah. So it, it has been the, the, the hardest thing for me in my nutrition life to deal with because, uh, you know, with B12, it's easy. Just take the B12. It's, it's inexpensive. It's easy to get. And we know it works. Um, it's an easy solution. Omega-3s are much more like we don't even know if we need it. Um, so 
it's it's a tough thing. And I don't we don't want to make veganism hard. No. Uh, but we also don't want vegans we want vegans to be as healthy as they possibly can be. Right. So. Now, the last time we talked, you mentioned zinc. And I've read more about that since and I've also read that as one gets older, it's really something to look at and not just vegans, but really anybody that doesn't eat, I believe it's oysters. So what are your thoughts on zinc today? Yeah, I think that if if you find yourself getting colds more often than you think is reasonable, say more than once every six months, you should look at your zinc intake and your protein intake. That's probably the easiest way to determine whether you should worry about it or not. Because zinc has, if, if you get low in zinc, your, your immune system can't uh, work as well. So that's that's the marker I choose to tell people. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're not getting colds, then your zinc status is probably fine. If you are, you might take a, a modest supplement, such as 10, milligram, 10 to 25 milligrams a day. And I actually take it myself. Um, I'm a big believer for myself, <clears throat> excuse me, for myself in taking zinc because I was getting cold, <clears throat> excuse me, I was getting colds uh, more often than I liked. And, and I started taking zinc supplements about five years ago. And since then, I have not had a serious cold. And when I do get one, it's gone usually within a day. Um, mm. But And so I, I, I think that's why it was that I just wasn't getting enough zinc. Okay. You have 10 seconds to tell me why yeah. you put protein in there too. Because protein is also important for the immune system. Uh, your body's white, white blood cells are, are very high in protein, and that's what fights infections. Wow. Okay, Jack Norris, bless your heart. I could talk to you forever. Veganhealth.org for Jack's Wise <clears throat> Council on Nutrition. And check out Vegan Outreach, too, and the Coalition for Healthy School Food. There's so many people doing amazing things. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Unity Online Radio for hosting. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.